today on Ag News Daily. There has to be education on this. There has to be stable genetics on this. Um, but once there, once it really is figured out, um, I think you're, I think it's going to be great for the American farmer. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily podcast, joined by Madison Honkamp. Madison, how are you doing today? I am great, Mike, but it is a little rainy outside, but how are you doing? I, same, same. It's a little rainy. It's a little chilly. It feels like the first day of fall has finally arrived, and now it's all downhill into cold and darkness for the next six months. Yes, I know. I have to go out to the beef farm later this evening, and I am not looking forward to rinsing steers in... I don't even know what the temperature is, like 60 degrees outside? Probably 60 and spit yep. and rain. That sounds like the perfect temperature to work cattle. Oh, it is. It definitely is. <laughs> Absolutely. Build some character for you, Matt. <laughs> I guess. Uh, what have you seen in the news today, Mike? Well, great question. I, I want to kick it off by looking at a little bit of the broader economy because we continue to see news that highlights the fear of a recession. So as we talked about yesterday, we had U.S. factory activity down at its lowest level in more than a decade. Today, we got a report out from ADP. They do their national employment report uh, looking at private non-farm payrolls. And what they found was that growth in August, so this is a delayed study, growth in August was not as strong as was estimated. And they said that businesses have turned more cautious in their hiring, quote, with small enterprises becoming especially hesitant, end quote. And that factor, plus yesterday's news, plus the overall slowdown in exports driven by this trade war, has, uh, has really caused the stock market to, uh, to enter quite a bit of a correction today. And uh, really, all aspects of the, the S&P 500 were in the red earlier. So it's, it's one of those things that you know, again, we don't want to read too much into a single report, but as these things start to pile up, investors take notice. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll pull their money out of the stock market. Maybe they'll just sit with it on the sidelines. Or, you know, maybe they'll look for other stories that are developing, perhaps in the world of commodities. So we will keep an eye on it. We'll see uh, how this manifests and plays out over the next uh, couple of weeks. Yes, we definitely will, Mike. But speaking of the economy, um, We've seen a lot of issues coming up with, in the dairy industry recently, and um, Secretary Purdue was actually in Madison, Wisconsin yester yesterday at World Dairy Expo in Madison, and he predicts a possible doom for small dairies. Um, as we know, a lot of Wisconsin's economy does come from the dairy industry because they are a huge you know, they pride themselves in being America's dairy land, but he did say in America, the big get bigger and the small go out. And he, quote, I don't think in America for any small business, we have guaranteed income or guaranteed profitability. And this really left a lot of Wisconsin farmers kind of disheartened and kind of down on their luck after leaving that talk with him. Because um, Wisconsin has lost about 551 dairy farms so far this year, and they actually lost 638 in 2018, according to the state data. So we will definitely be watching that, see, hopefully we can get a win for the dairy industry with all our different trade agreements. But 
again, for small dairy producers, it has been a really rough time. It has been. It's been a very tough three or four years for mm-hmm. for all folks in the dairy sector. But yeah, the small producers with uh, who aren't able to produce their way out of trouble are definitely feeling the pinch stronger than most. That's for sure. Yes. And Jim Mulhern, I believe is how you say his last name, is the president of the National Milk Producers Federation. Um, He did say that consolidation has been a fact of farming and thus dairy farming for generations. And he noted that payments under the new dairy margin coverage program are, you know, weighted toward covering the first 200 cows of a dairy herd hopefully giving extra assistance to smaller producers. But with prices, these last several years, it hasn't helped that much. No, that's for sure. It has It has really been a struggle. And I've got some dairy-related news for us as well. We learned from the ERS, the Economic Research Service there at USDA, that total production of ice cream, this includes low-fat ice cream, regular ice cream, and frozen yogurt, totaled Madison Honkamp, do you want to guess how many pounds of ice cream we produce in a year here in this country? Um, I want to say like tens of thousands. Ten, ten, ten what? Tens of thousands. I don't know what an exact number. Oh, tens of thousands. Well, you're a little light. We produce just over 6.2 billion pounds oh. of ice cream. Yes. Quite a bit. I know I try to do my part in consuming as much full-fat ice cream as I possibly can. Um, what I did want to bring up, this kind of highlights the struggle that the dairy industry has been facing. Even though we produce 6.2 billion pounds, that's a 4% decline from 2017. Basically, all three classes, low-fat, regular, and frozen yogurt, all saw declines. And um, the depressing thing, looking at population growth here over the past 20 years, is that production of all three of those categories has been relatively stable since 2000. So even though the population has grown a lot, we're not eating on a per capita basis the same amount of ice cream as we were back in 2000. So I think we need to have a heat wave come through. We need a late, a late summer or early fall heat wave to come through to really spike that ice cream production and uh, help out those dairy-producing friends of ours. Yes, definitely. And I will say, my roommates and I contribute to the dairy industry so much. The other night, we bought six gallons of milk just for this week. (laughs) And I think two gallons of ice cream. So... Perfect. Yes. That's what we need more of here in this country is people (laughs) be more like Madison. And and her roommates. (laughs) And her roommates. How many roommates do you have, Madison? Uh, There's four of us total in our apartment. Gotcha. Okay, I was thinking, you know, for... For two people, that would be a lot of milk. I would really tip my hat to you. But for four, that's understandable. A little yeah. over a gallon apiece throughout, throughout the week. Oh, yeah. We each, like, we all obviously come from farming backgrounds, and we all probably drink about half a gallon of milk a day. Perfect. America, take a lesson. <laughs> well, well, what other news do you have for us, Madison? Well, Mike, we do have some more news coming out of SNAP and just different budget cuts that they are doing for SNAP. The Food and Nutrition Service will propose this week another way to cut back on SNAP spending. And this time it's by reining in the way states allow recipients to deduct some utility utility expenses. And they did say on Tuesday that such a change was needed to update 
a patchwork of outdated approaches states currently use. And I know we have seen almost billions cut from SNAP um, spending by the USDA. And they are saying that we will probably see about $4.5 billion cut over the next five years. Okay, so going to be shaving off, uh, well, some some decimal points when yes. it comes to SNAP spending, it sounds like. Yes, and the department does estimate that about 16% of households will see an increase in their monthly SNAP benefits, but 19% would see a decrease, and less than 8,000 households would lose SNAP eligibility under this change. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is a change at the margin, but it's still a change. And for those 8,000 households, they're going to have to uh, mm-hmm. figure out a new way to pay for groceries, it sounds like. Yes, definitely. Well, I've got some news here from the industrial, excuse me, the National Industrial Hemp Council. They have gotten together with the American Farm Bureau Federation, and they are asking the EPA to add 10 different crop protection products to be used on hemp. Uh, Basically, they're saying that the chemicals themselves are already perfectly suited for hemp, but hemp is not on the label. And so they want EPA to be aggressive and go ahead and do the studies, do whatever they need to do, but let some of these products, let 10 of these products be utilized in in hemp production. Um, They did say that uh, the quote, EPA's approach has been encouraging on this front as far as uh, requesting comments and getting these products registered, but they're saying that they'd really like to see these things updated and be allowed for pest control beginning in 2020. So as of right now, the EPA is requesting comments uh, regarding adding hemp to the labels of products under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. So if you are a hemp producer, if you're thinking about growing hemp this next year, log on to the EPA's website and uh, just search for, I'm not sure, I suppose hemp, and uh, see which which of these bills pop up that you can comment on and uh, see if it'd be a good fit for your operation and, you know, get active, make some noise. Yes, definitely. And we will be hearing more about hemp production in our interview for today. Um, Excellent segue, Madison. You're exactly definitely. right. We'll be, we'll be talking <laughs> hemp. Yes, we definitely will. But I do have one last piece of news, Mike, um, and it is about Bayer. We have seen Bayer, obviously, within the in the news a lot, um, especially this past year. But Bayer actually might sue if the EU bans glyphosate and the German-based um, agrochemical company will consider legal action if Brussels doesn't renew the license for Bayer's controversial weed killer glyphosate in 2022. So this will be something we're going to keep our eye on, especially these next couple of years to see how this plays out. And officials in Austria, France, and Germany have already indicated they intend to phase out the herbicide. Um, And they feel that if a scientific process Um, is being completely ignored, then they do want to look at all of their options. Wow, that would be a huge change Mm -hmm. on a pretty big tool in most growers' toolboxes. Yes, it definitely will. So it'll be something we'll be watching. Yes, indeed. We'll keep an eye on it. We'll strike down some more details as they come to light. Well, Madison, I tell you what, if that wraps up your news, I am all out of news. i got to imagine we've got some listeners who are pretty jazzed to talk about hemp production. So let's see where the market's wrapped up. What do you think? Let's do it, Mike. 
All right, folks, as we look at the grain markets, we've got a, a little bit weaker trade here throughout. Wheat really kind of pulled the sector down on the day. December corn was off four and three quarter cents at 387 and three quarters. The March was also down four and three quarters to close the day at 399 and three quarters. In soybeans, the November contract was down five and three quarter cents at 913 and three quarters. The January down four and three quarters to close the day at 927 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, the December was down nine and three quarter cents, closed the day at 489 even. The March dropped nine and a half cents to wrap it up at four six excuse me, four ninety six and a quarter. A little bit of strength today in the livestock markets. In live cattle, the October contract climbed to dollar forty two fifty at one oh six oh five. The December was up eighty cents, finishing at one ten sixty two and a half. And in feeder cattle, the October contract was up a dollar ten at one forty two oh seven fifty. November up a dollar fifty, finished the day at one forty one sixty seven and a half. And in lean hogs, the October contract was down thirty five cents at sixty two twenty. December down 82.50 to finish at 69.10. And we did see a little bit of wind come into the dairy industry sales on the day. October contract was up a dime at 18.38, with the November up nine cents, finishing the day at 18.33. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our interview and discuss exactly what industrial hemp production will look like here in the United States. Well, today we are talking about a crop that has been a hot topic on the minds of many producers and folks across agriculture, and that's hemp production. To discuss it a little further with us, we've got Jeffrey Yaros, who is the CEO of Flura. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Jeffrey, tell us a little bit about your company, Flura, how you guys got your start, and what you do within the hemp space. Sure. So we we started as a uh, as a seed and grow company in Southern Oregon. Um, I actually uh, I actually came into this space as a uh, as a investor and uh, was looking for uh, capable people that knew how to grow hemp, understood the genetics of hemp, and um, really. Uh, the search led me to Southern Oregon because that's kind of where that's the, that's kind of the hotbed of where this whole thing um, really started uh, Southern Oregon and Northern California. And I, um, I met Ron Strickland uh, who has been uh, growing cannabis for about 20 years. And uh, I was uh, impressed by the fact that with his uh, deep understanding of uh, of hemp and uh, his ability to kind of see um, see where this industry is going to go and really all, what I was you know like I said initially I was you know looked at this as oh wow this is going to be huge all the uses for hemp it's amazing and you know but of course as you know it was illegal about nine or ten months ago so we I have really had to wait. Uh, being in financial services, I really had to wait to this year to even uh, express involvement in the industry. Um, but uh, I met some uh, people like Ron along the way who were already doing this. And, you know, we decided that we really wanted to take this to the next level and uh, grow a lot of acres this year um, with, uh, with some of uh, Ron's genetics. And uh, that's kind of how it got started. Um, 
the 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 a funny thing kind of happened along the way though um we realized that hemp is a uh has never been grown on a large scale uh in the united states or at least when it was it was uh back in the 30s so there was no there's no manual on how to grow hemp and how to grow hemp on an industrial scale there's no machinery uh from some of the popular companies to plant this stuff or harvest it so we've really along in this very short window um had to create things we've had to mechanize a very manual crop and uh it's been a lot of fun and very challenging uh but you know everyone in this industry is figuring it out because up until this point if you were planting hemp you were doing it by hand if you were harvesting hemp you were going out in the field and harvesting it by hand so um having to you know making some real um making some real strategic partnerships all through the United States we've been able to um develop a mechanized seeder and transplanter and uh we're about to roll out our uh customized harvester uh which is a mechanized harvester which as i mentioned does not uh does not really uh you can't go down to John Deere and buy a hemp harvester right now so uh, we had to kind of make one so uh it's uh it's quite a uh, interesting industry to say the least it's never boring something new every day it is and when you talk about growing hemp on an industrial scale give us an idea of of what constitutes industrial level growth are we talking 50 acres 200 acres 10,000 acres what is uh what are you shooting for well it's it's funny it's funny you ask that because um if if you went to anyone that's uh, grown this stuff in the past five years um and you said a hundred acres they'd be like forget it you'll never get it out of the field there's no you, unless you hire a workforce of a thousand people but if you go to a farmer in the midwest or in the central valley in california and say a hundred acres they'll laugh at you because they're used to growing thousands and thousands of acres so for us um we, you know, we really, uh, I would consider anything uh, over a few hundred acres industrial just because you're getting into a scale where you have to use uh, some mechanization. You can do, you, you can still, you know, there, there is a, a manual component to this. I think eventually, though, uh, if you want to go real large scale in like 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 acres, which will happen, um, they're going to have to really dial in machinery. Jeffrey, I want to talk about the, I guess, the silver bullet that, to use um, maybe not a better term, but but a lot of people have referred to hemp as perhaps a silver bullet for agriculture for those folks that typically grow wheat and corn and soybeans to as a way to diversify their operations. Do you see hemp becoming as large scale as some of those conventional row crops that we currently grow? Yeah, you know, um, I was actually down in uh, the uh, central Illinois uh, last week uh, speaking with some uh, multi-generation uh, corn and soybean row crop farmers. And, you know, a lot of people are trying a couple acres here and there. And I think you're going to see it. Um, I think you're going to see it scale up more and more and more. Um, there has to be education on this. There has to be stable genetics on this. Uh, but once there, once it really is figured out, 
Um, I think you're, I think it's going to be great for the American farmer. And, you know, that's really part of our mission in this is to try to revitalize some of that, um, is really revitalize a small American family farm because with the pricing on hemp and all the things that it could be utilized for, um, you could really grow something, uh, rather profitably, which you really, it's hard to do with corn and soybeans right now. And what that would do if a lot of these uh, farmers in Iowa and Illinois and Indiana and other places around there started growing hemp for whatever it was, whether it was for, you know, CBD or for um, uh, for animal feed or to make uh, to make plastic, to make paper. I mean, there's just use after use after use. What would happen to the rest of the commodities is you would get a little more price stabilization because as you know, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, depressed market right now in corn and soybean. So if more people were growing hemp, it would also help people growing corn and soybeans. It would not only put more money in their pocket, but it would make the, it would hypothetically make the price of their, um, it would hypothetically make the price of corn and soybeans kind of go up a little. So make that a little more profitable. So it's really a win across the board, in my opinion. It is. And one of the things that, and if I can play devil's advocate for a second, hemp has really caught on here over the past year. And I've heard some concerns, especially from growers who are either dabbling in it or considering dabbling in the hemp market, that perhaps we're going to overshoot our refining capabilities. We're going to overshoot our our target markets here in the next year or two as everybody kind of sees this as a gold rush. What's your take on these uses? Are we really prepared as an industry to grow hemp on on a large scale and find ways to process it and still generate a return for growers? I think right now the uh, demand is much higher than the supply could ever be. And I I do want to go to one thing you just said there. There is not enough processing. It just does not exist. We're way behind on that. It's going to be a choke point in the industry. Uh, many farmers out there, and I've talked to a lot of them, um, don't have a, a plan of how to get this stuff processed. And even if they did, uh, the majority, there's not a lot of infrastructure there for this. So it's, I think it's going to take a couple years for the infrastructure to ca- catch up with the amount of crop in the, um, out there. And that is a real problem. Um, it's, uh, it's, if you don't have a place to sell your crop or get it out of the, you know, really get it out of the field, dry it, then sell it, um, you know, you're going to be potentially holding on to it for a while because there's just not enough processing right now. Um, what I don't see, um, I don't see this, even if the price went down 90%, it would still be extremely profitable. We're just scratching the surface of the plant right now. You got to remember, basically, most of what's being grown right now is for the nutraceutical market, for CBD, which we see everywhere. The majority of the CBD is from overseas. A lot of it's, a lot of it's not good stuff. And um, I think that when the public gets educated on what they're buying and the government steps in, the FDA steps in, and we start putting a little regulation on that, um, there's, you know, that's really going to um, be good for all of us because 
you know, like if you go out to the store right now, the majority of the stuff is not from the United States. So I think that uh, eventually when people get educated, the government gets educated and we get proper regulation, proper management of this, and they actually get their arms around it, um, it's, it's going to be years before, uh, you know, a price collapse of epic proportions. And then, like I said, we're just talking about CBD. There's, uh, there's many other uses for this plant, and we're just scratching the surface with those because, frankly, there's no large-scale um, there's no large scale um, processing facilities for any of the other uh, uses that, uh, you know, you could take advantage of with uh, hemp. Jeffrey, as you look at the expenses that go into growing hemp production, I talked to a couple of producers that were just kind of dipping their toes in the water this year with some hemp production, but they were sharing with me that it was basically a dollar per seed and they were seeding it at 7,000 seeds per acre, making it a $7,000 cost per acre. Is that what you're seeing as well too, as, as being kind of the industry norm right now for cost? Yeah, you will see a dollar a seed. Um, if you're putting 7,000 seeds an acre, I would ask what strain you're actually using. Um, most of our, uh, most of our farms are, uh, anywhere between 2,400 to 3,000 seeds per acre. So I'm not sure what I'm not sure what strain of hemp those people are buying, and that's why uh, it's really important to know um, to know what it is that you're getting. And again, that goes back to you've got to trust your source because right now. There's no regs on what seeds are. People can claim whatever they want to claim. They could say, oh, this is 15% CBD, 0.3% THC. Then they go out in the field, they grow it, and uh, maybe they end up with hemp that's above the federal uh, uh, THC limit. And then what do you have? You have what's called hot hemp. And then um, that's, depending on what state you're in, you could get, you know, that could, you could run into some problems with that. Um, So, you know, seeds, seeds and genetics are um, really an area that um, we've focused on. And we really think that um, we could be helpful to people. um, And we're willing to help people uh, to, uh, to make sure that they're, um, you know, buying the right type of seeds. Because if someone said 7,000 seeds an acre, I would first ask what they're buying, because that sounds a little high. Now, they are a dollar a seed. I mean, that's pretty much the standard right now. But there's really no difference between a um, there's really no difference between the dollar seeds, because no one, you know, people people label things and make claims. um, But you don't know really what the germination rate is. What's the true CBD rate? What's the true THC rate? These are all things you need to really know and you really need to trust your source. And there's not enough, there's not enough trusted sources right now in the industry on seed. And, you know, that's really uh, something we're concentrating on trying to be. So let's talk a little bit about Flora. What is the business model that you guys have adopted? Are you basically looking at yourselves as a large-scale grower? Are you a consulting firm working with smaller growers? And then, you know, with the mechanical harvester, are you guys a machinery company? Very good question. So, um, you know, we, as I said, we originally, we were, were really concentrated originally on being a seed and grow company. 
uh, a lot of these things that we've done um, are out of necessity uh, to, 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 take, to take the seed to a successful harvest. We really have no intention of becoming a uh, equipment company. Um, ultimately, ultimately, um, I think our sweet spot, <coughs> I think our sweet spot is seeds, um, because that's where the whole, that's where everything begins. That's what people are crying out for. Um, with our, with our seeds, we do provide consulting, uh, to farmers and, you know, they really do need it because a lot of people don't know, a lot of people are out there with their crops in there right now. And they don't have a drying plan. They don't have a. They don't have someone to sell it to, or they don't have a, an extractor lined up to take their product. And um, they might not know that they, you know, need to be testing their, uh, testing their hemp at the end. And these are all, you know, these are all things that um, we help out uh, our clients with. And people can, uh, you know, people can send us uh, questions just because we really want to move the industry forward and try to be a voice. And um, I, I hate doing a shameless plug here, but if anybody wants to has a crop and they have questions on their crop, they can actually send a question to ask Flora uh, at flora.com. So that's A-S-K-F-L-U-R-A uh, at F-L-U-R-A dot com. And then our website's F-L-U-R-A dot com. So really, we 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 want to be a, uh, a player in seeds in this space. We do, uh, we are a vertically integrated company, so we do do everything. Um, uh, but in terms of where we've um, experienced, where we see a void and where we, uh, a place that we really want to step into is, uh, is the seed market and, you know, really helping our farmers succeed because if they succeed and, you know, we don't charge for consulting, we want them to succeed so then they can come back next year and get more seeds. It doesn't make, I'm not, we're not in this for the short game to make a quick buck this year and then leave them, you know, leave them hanging at the end of the year. Um, and I think that that is, um, um, I think that's kind of unfortunately rare in this industry, but, um, you know, anyone can contact us if they need any uh, assistance or advice on the crop. Well, fantastic. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate your time. Well, big thanks to Jeffrey for taking the time to fill us in. Fascinating industry, Madison. It'll be neat to watch this develop. And I tell you, it's also neat to watch this podcast develop or listen to it develop, as the case may be. If you're a listener who's missed past episodes, check out our website at agnewsdaily.com. That will take you to our home at the Global Ag Network. You can listen to our episodes plus the episodes of lots of other talented podcast creators who are part of the Global Ag Network. And you can also interact with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily. With that, Madison, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.